Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we're delighted to have Hector McNeil, co-CEO at Han ETF. Han ETF is Europe's first independent white label provider of ETFs with a turnkey solution for asset managers to enter the ETF business. It's great to have you on the podcast today, Hector. Hey, thanks, James. Very happy to be here. So usually we get a rundown on people's background, but before we do that, I just thought it'd be helpful if you could give an explanation as to what an ETF is for those that don't know. Yeah, no problem. Well, the, the trick is in the name. It's Exchange Traded Fund. So it's basically a fund that you would buy normally for your pension or for your investments or whatever that you might get from someone, uh, Threadneedle, Investment Management or Fidelity or Schroders or whoever. But instead of it, you're having lots of forms and checks to fill in and send off, it trades like a security on the exchange. So you can go and buy an ETF in the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 or gold or gilts or whatever, but you get all that sort of fund all in one chain. You can hold it in your SIPs and your ISAs and all those types of things. And it's incredibly democratic. It's super cheap. Came pretty much over from the US. That's where it started. And it's sort of democratizing investments all over the world at the moment. Amazing. And so we're going to talk a lot today about investments and public markets and trends. We must make it clear from the start that everything that we say today cannot be construed as financial advice and any personal investments are made at the risk of the individual and all capital is at risk. So just get that out there. Um, So, well, thanks for that, Hector. And so can you give us a rundown of your career, what you started out doing and how you ended up launching Han ETF? Yeah, well, as you can tell by the voice, I'm a Yorkshireman, born and bred. So uh, I came down to the city originally as a graduate trainee to the London Stock Exchange from Hull Uni. And that was a massive launch pad for me, really, because it was the centre of the universe at the time, the London Stock Exchange. And there was loads of changes going on. Big Bang had happened just a couple of years before I started. There was a huge amount of growth in the capital markets generally. And I managed to get in the bottom of that, spent a fair bit of time there and Went off a little bit, did an MBA, and then came back and started working for Morgan Stanley. And I worked at Morgan Stanley during the dot-com boom in their equity capital markets division. So I saw all the uh, you know hundreds to thousands of internet companies uh, coming forward. So that was my first real test of an exposure to massive growth in the capital markets. And it was a fantastic time. I floated lastminute.com and various other businesses like that, which was superb. And then I started working for a US firm called Susquehanna, who were a sort of very specialist market maker. And that's when I first came across ETFs, because ultimately they'd just come to Europe. They were market makers in options and ETFs in the US, but that trend had only just started in Europe. I mean, iShares, which is the 500-pound gorilla in the ETF market, part of BlackRock, they'd literally only had less than 10 ETFs at the time and five staff in Europe. Now they've got nearly half a trillion dollars of assets in ETFs just in Europe alone. So I was making markets there for five years, got really involved in the ETF market, loved it. And then I went to be one of the founders and owners of a company called ETF Securities. And we were the guys who invented gold ETFs, oil ETFs, et cetera. And that completely democratized the whole space of commodity investing, really, because most people, if they wanted to buy physical gold, they had to go to Harrods and buy a bar and stick it in their their safe or or in the garden or under their bed, whatever. And with a gold ETF, it's uh, completely physically backed with gold in a vault but you have a share of that gold through the ETF and you can buy and sell it just like an equity and hold it in your brokerage account, Agri's, Lansdowne, AJ Bell, whatever that is. So you can build that part as your portfolio. So we took that business from zero to over 30 billion at its peak. In fact, we had the fourth largest gold holding in the world at one time. I used to call it the People's Central Bank 
because the only holders above us were the German Bundestag and there was, I think, the US and Italy, I think, because at that time, unfortunately, the UK had sold off its gold, right? So we'd fallen down there, but we were the fourth largest holding. And then from there, I went to set up a business called Boost ETP, which is a short leveraged ETF provider. So same sort of thing, but instead of trading one times the FTSE 100, you could trade three times, three times long or short. And they were great sort of short-term trading tools. And we did very well there. And then we did a joint venture with a firm called Wisdom Tree, who are a US ETF firm, top 10 in the world. They want to come to Europe. And we JV'd with them. We rolled Boost into that business. And then we co-owned uh, Wisdom Tree Europe with Wisdom Tree for a couple of years. So Hans actually my fourth ETF business. I think we're the only guys in the world that have set up four ETF businesses. And at ETF Securities, I met my current business partner, Nick Bienkowski, and Han actually stands for Hector and Nick. So nothing more complicated than that, but it's because our DNA. And over that time, we've issued over 500 ETFs, listed on 23 exchanges globally from Asia to Europe to the US. And just as a, as a measure, that uh, 500 is actually equivalent to 5% of the world's total. So we've issued over 5% of the world's total of ETFs. So uh, so that's been my career. So I'm, we're pretty much the only guys who've set up three ETF businesses, exited it, and uh, raised billions of dollars of assets and made some decent money out of it. So, But I genuinely believe Hans is going to be our biggest and best yet, by far. Yeah, and it's been quite a fast rise for Han as well. So how long have you guys been going and what's your asset under management, brackets AUM now? Yeah, well, well, it has actually. I thought, you know, I used to like in my days at ETF Securities of being like the Super Mario Brothers. We're just running along the road, picking up strawberries. It was such a fast growth business. But actually, Han's been even quicker. So we're actually just a little over two years old in terms of having product in the markets. And actually, funny enough, in 2020, we started January with 50 million of assets, 5-0. And as of last week, we were 1.3 billion. So we had a rise from 50 million to 1.3 billion, which is pretty incredible. I think it made us seventh in total in terms of the rankings in Europe, which considering most of the players have been here for 20 plus years and are part of massive banks or massive asset managers, to go from a startup to that sort of level is, is pretty incredible. And I think that growth is only going to continue as well. So we've had a really good start, almost a couple of hundred million in already in January. And we've got tons of products coming in the pipeline and the ones we have currently are really enjoying good performance as well. So fingers crossed, we're doing okay. Yeah, awesome. It'd be great to see you keep up that growth trajectory. And so ETFs, I know they can be active, but on the whole, they're generally passive investment products. Can you just explain what that means and what the benefits of passive investing are? Look, the reality is when you look at most academic studies that look at efficient markets and, uh, and stuff like that, what comes across quite clearly is that it's pretty hard to beat an efficient market. Most of the studies focus on the US equity market, and I think there's been next to nobody that's beat the S&P or the Dow Jones index. So I think what indices do is it gives you methodologies that you can get a broad diversification in the market and participate in the market moves, whether they go up or down. And obviously passive, the job of passive is to track the market. It's not to outperform the market, and it's not to underperform the market, it's to track the market. So when you get involved in that, you can come up with a concept of asset allocation which means that actually you focus more on making active decisions in terms of how you weight your portfolio rather than trying to guess the winners in a certain market. And, you know, by definition, what I found, particularly when I was at Susquehanna, which was a high-frequency trader, information gets disseminated in milliseconds now. So any end investor is going to struggle to keep up with the market, probably is going to be the last person to know when there are things happening. So 
being diversified and in broad passive products makes a lot of sense. So it's what it says in the tin. So if you buy a FTSE 100 ETF, you're going to have all 100 securities in that are weighted to exactly the structure of the FTSE index. It's just that you trade it as one share. So yes, of course, you could go into the FTSE and buy a unicorn, you know, just to uh, use the terminology. Might massively outperform the FTSE, which is great if you do it, fantastic. But the likelihood is you won't, right? You know, the likelihood is you're a lot more exposed, especially to drawdowns, whatever. You can really get caught out there. And the thing about diversification is you should have some level of protection when some sectors are doing well, some sectors aren't. And when you've got that sort of passive exposure, you can very cheaply put together a portfolio that could give you US allocation, emerging markets allocation, European allocation, alternatives like gold or long short funds and also commodities, etc., and also bonds as well. There's been a massive increase in bond passive investing over the last few years, primarily through ETFs. You could probably put a portfolio together for half a percent, 50 basis points, which would be the equivalent of what you could probably get from some of the higher fee private banks who probably would charge you probably two or three percent above that to do that and probably wouldn't perform any better or any worse. And also going back to the academics, there's a lot of academic analysis to say a lot of the um, benefits of compound compounding in investments actually comes from the cost of the underlying investment as well. So the cheaper the investment you have, the more likely it is going to be a long-term success for you in the creating wealth. Over 20, 30 years, a 1% difference on fees per annum can make a couple of hundred percent difference in terms of what your uh, portfolio is going to achieve. So I think that's what it all blends into, James, from that perspective. Yeah. And is there kind of an expectation of how long you should hold an ETF for, or is it purely circumstantial based on the individual's profile? I think it depends on the ETF. We mentioned the short leveraged ETFs earlier. You know, some people trade those intraday, right? Or they might trade them over a couple of days. Whereas if you have a long-term conviction or something, say like uh, cloud computing, you might say, well, my outlook on that is five years. So I'm going to put that investment in there and I'm going to hold it for that period of time. So it just depends on the outlook. And there's so many ETFs out there now that there's probably are some that are more tactical and some that are more strategic. When you have that ability to do that, the great thing about ETFs is unlike a mutual fund, you know, which I always think is akin to the modern consumer just doesn't want that sort of structure anymore because what do you ever buy now that you don't know the price of it when you buy it, right? You've got to wait a couple of days to find out. There's nothing in this world today that happens like that. Whereas an ETF, when the market opens at eight, you can buy it. And if you want to sell it 30 seconds later, you can do that, right? So you've got that sort of Amazon Prime immediacy that the consumer is asking for now. So I think you've got all sorts of outlooks, but obviously the more you churn your investments, the more friction and costs that you get in your portfolios. So people, you know, I'm always a big believer in, you know, making longer term decisions than be too tactical. Whenever I try and time the market, I get it badly wrong. So that's the worst thing you could probably do, I think. Yeah, that's solid advice for everyone, I think. So as of the 31st of December, 2020, the FTSE 100 was made up of just 1.29% information technology, whereas the S&P 500 was just over 27% IT. So five years ago, we had less than five unicorns in the UK. Now we've got over 80. Do you expect the UK to go through a kind of IPO bonanza and that we'll start to see a lot of these unicorns listing on UK exchanges? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's all going to come down to multiples what multiple a company can get on which exchange. And the sad fact is that the NASDAQ does trade at a higher multiple than the FTSE. As I worked five years at the LSE, you know, they've had multiple attempts, whether it's AIM or the green market or the innovation market, whatever it is, 
of doing that. But I do think it's really critical that with Brexit, with COVID, all those things that Britain really gives its capital markets a shake-up, really, and finds good ways to ensure that we can go. I mean, I love the CDIS and EIS schemes. I think they've been revolutionary for investors and uh, entrepreneurs in the UK. But maybe there should be a nice bridge between those sort of facilities into the capital markets and some sort of incentive, tax incentive, to make sure those businesses stay here over this medium to long term. But I think your point's a good one in terms of sheer numbers, because I think the sheer number, you know, when you've only got a couple of companies, it's very easy for those bigger sort of US tech companies to pick them off and invest in them. I think you're seeing it a bit in the emerging markets now as well, vis-a-vis, you know, people like uh, Badu, Tencent are pretty much the largest private equity venture capital firms in Asia now, right? You know, and I think the more volume you see in Europe, the more we can see out that. So you see a lot of the IPOs coming out of Asia are actually spin-offs from those companies. And hopefully you see the same story uh, coming out of Europe. I saw the other day that Tony Blair's son's got some sort of businesses worth 200 million, uh, which, uh, you know, maybe shows a little bit about hereditary uh, success there, really, or, or the name carrying you through. But, but I do hope so. I mean, the LSE, for me, has always been the leading European markets. I think it's a great... It is an international shop window, whereas a lot of the European exchanges are more local, more, much more locally focused. So I'm hoping that the between the government and the LSE, they can fix that and get a good shop window for investors. I mean, at some point, Han may consider a flotation. There's very few ETF companies out there that you can invest in. I mean, Wisdom Tree is pretty much the only one, but they have such a concentration in a certain area of the ETF market that I don't think they really have a beta to the ETF market, whereas I think uh, Han could. And I think we get a higher valuation for that. My preference would be to go London to begin with and see what, see what happened. Well, who knows? But I hope it does mean that we get many more here. Yeah. And you guys are constantly looking at new trends and new types of products to build ETFs around. I know you've got cloud and e-commerce and all sorts of different products, cannabis. What yeah. trends are really attracting investors at the moment? Where's the capital flowing into and what trends can you see on the horizon where new products are maybe yeah. starting up, which you think are going to be very popular? Yeah, it's interesting because whenever I've, Nick and I have gone out to set up a new ETF business, everyone always said, well, why would you do that? You're just going to get crushed by iShares and, and uh, UBS and all that. And I say, well, that all may be very well, but that's not happened to me yet. But obviously the market gets more concentrated and more uh, harder, to, harder to break into, right? But I always have the mantra that I always want a product that's got a story. So when I'm talking to clients, I can get excited about it and get the clients excited about it. With the best will in the world, the, what I call the big supermarket providers, the Black Rocks and the uh, UBSs and stationaries of the world, they're a big warehouse full of whatever you want to buy. But the specialism and the service and the content for me is what you require. It's all about low fee, volume, building economies of scale. I always have the mantra that I want a story. And also when I sit with an investor and they say, look, I've got 20 ETF firms. Why do I need a 21st? I say, well, I'm going to do different things. I'm going to give you different options, different ideas. I'm going to do things either better or I'm going to do new things, whatever it is. And I think Hans proved that with the first European cloud ETF. I think having the first medical cannabis ETF, which I think was a massive plus point. You know, emerging market e-commerce ETF was a first as well. We did a gold ETF with the Royal Mint. It's probably the 20th to market, but it's the first time a sovereign mint as uh, back to gold products, when a lot of gold bugs are very paranoid people. And, you know, why would you hold gold in the bank when you've got the option of holding it in the Queen's vaults, right? So 
So all these things have nice stories and are added value. And even if you take Bitcoin, we've probably created probably the most efficient way to access the Bitcoin markets. Unfortunately, the FCA has pulled the plug on retail owning that. But I think that those markets will become less Wild West and more institutionalized over the future. And that's my job really is to give robust structures that investors can understand, get the right protections in terms of the fiduciary responsibilities behind the product, and we educate them. So that's definitely what we're about. But the trends really, what we're seeing is very, very strongly in the thematic space, future trends. Obviously, a lot of that has been expedited by COVID, whether that's the work from home or it's the technology boost that's happened across the markets. I don't think any of that's new. I think it was all happening. I just think it's been massively expedited, You know, whether that's three, five years faster than it probably was going to happen, but it's definitely been expedited. And also, we all know ESG has become a massive trend. And I think it'll become such a trend that we'll stop even talking about it, that investments will all have to be what I call ESG light. You sort of get the, you know, you've got ESG light, ESG medium and ESG heavy. Heavy being that sort of real impact type investment, you know, voting boards off or whatever it is, down to simple screens in indices that take out, say, tobacco and gun stocks and alcohol and things like that, really, uh, and if you think about it, it's been around for a while because you've had Shariah compliant products for a long time. And quite clearly, Shariah is probably the first real formalization of ESG screens, I think. I think that led the way. So I think ESG is uh, really important. I mean, for instance, we recently did a decarbonization enablers ETF, which is a lot of the products out there currently focus on the carbon footprint of firms and sort of screen based on that. But we're actually screening on how the business model of the company is enabling that carbon transition story so we're actually saying well how are these companies have an impact on that decarbonization whether it's uber with uh, shared riding or zoom with uh, cutting down on meetings and travel you make a grade based on that we'll probably look at the hydrogen space the water space solar what we call distributed renewable energy all these types of things and they're going to be huge especially with the biden harris presidency that stuff was all a bit up in the air with trump but it's going to be massively expedited now with that story. So I think these thematics are going to be key. I mean, you probably saw there was an announcement in the US that there's going to be quite a few space ETFs coming out. I mean, if you think about the space sector, you know, that sort of space sector, the aerospace sectors has merged together. There used to be only five countries in the world could put up satellites. There's probably about 30 now. I think India recently put up 50 satellites in one go because they're all the size of your hand now rather than being the size of a bus. So I think those sorts of sectors are going to be much more important for investors and the ETF market is definitely servicing that side of the investment community. Yeah, it's exciting that you can get access to such cutting edge sectors through a single product. And that's really where thematic ETFs yeah. lend themselves very well. Uh, we've seen a wave of younger investors kind of in, spurred on by products like Robinhood and in the UK free trade. It's quite tempting for these investors to invest in stuff that they recognize like Tesla and SpaceX, maybe. So how do, you, how do you easily communicate to investors that actually ETF and a, maybe a passive product is better for them in the long run? Yeah, I mean, if you take that's a great example, actually, the Tesla or the Apple story or whatever it is. If you think that Apple, you know, is now bigger than the whole of the FTSE 100, right? I mean, that's just insane. I think it says a lot of the, the, the uh, COVID impacts on the real economy, but even so, it's still insane for me. The trouble is all about market timing. It's about when you get in, when you get out, all those types of things. And invariably, a lot of more novice investors will get in at the high and get out at the bottom, right? So they'll panic when the market's falling and they'll jump on the bandwagon when the market's rising. And uh, 
it's probably the worst thing you can do, really. Having a much more diversified approach is the best way. So we have a great strategy which focuses on the mega trends that are happening. So it's got eight mega trends, including cyber, robo, social media, big data, blockchain, digital entertainment, alternative transport, genomics, you know, all these things that are driving the world. But it equally weights those trends. So they equally get applied in the balances. And then underlying it equally weights the security. So the maximum holding in that uh, ETF is less than 2%. So the maximum for company moves and, uh, you know, something like if you bought the NASDAQ 100, something like Apple might be 20% of the index, right? So you get absolutely carried out the door if Apple gets a cold and the market falls. Now, the fangs in this product are less Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, all those guys is less than 4% in the index. So that's way more diversified. So you don't have to pick winners and you don't have to worry about large market moves. You can plug and play that product and leave it there for the long term. But I think that's a far more sensible strategy. And I think it really lends it well with junior investors as well, because they want to see that. They want to see the things they're using. They want to see the things they want to buy. They want to see the things they want to read about. They want to do everything on their mobile phone and they want Amazon Prime gratification. And I think these sort of strategies work really well from that perspective. It means that they just don't get carried out the door if there is something unforeseen they don't know about. Elon Musk gets uh, shown smoking a doobie on TV, right? You know, and the stock price goes down 10%. You just don't have to worry about those things. And then add to that pounds cost averaging where you should invest a certain amount each month and they never get in at the high, never get in at the low and over time. That should service you really well rather than you know, panicking or diving in at any point in time. And that sort of helps you diversify market timing over time as well. So I think diversification and pound cost averaging is the two things as an investor I would have as a cornerstone. Now, that doesn't mean to say you can't keep a couple of quid where you can do some bets. I think, all right, I'll have a bit of wild money that I can put some of the big bets on. But the vast majority of your money to get that compounding effect over time is definitely the way to do it there. I, mean, I think it was Einstein who said, uh, Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world or whatever, right? You know, and uh, if you pound cost average, you diversify, you'll get that compounding genius all, all the time. Particularly, as you say, if you're young, if you're going to take a 20-year outlook on that, who knows where the hell this market will go over that time. So that's the way I would definitely look at the world. Yeah. And you can buy ETFs and passive products, free trade and the like. And there's also a new passive ESG product called Ticker, T-I-C-K-R which is uh, very, very new, picking up some traction, which is interesting. So that's a great header. And what's next for Han ETF then? So obviously you've got lots of new products coming out and you've got big growth plans. What else is Han working on? I think more of the same, really. I think we want to really push the foot to the metal in the thematic area. That's going to be the obvious one. I think, ironically, active ETFs will become more important over time as well. But I think that's just a migration from the mutual fund wrapper, which requires on your filling forms in and writing a check and sending it off. And then two weeks later, you get your results, which just the world has just moved on from that, right? So I think uh, active will move to the ETF wrapper. And then I think maybe even we might even look at doing some sort of investment solutions, maybe doing some model portfolios or maybe an ETF of ETFs type stuff, you know, so people can, rather than stock picking or doing asset allocation, we can help them along with that and provide them with solution tools, which are nice and cheap and do the job for them and look after their money. And it's what I call a, a wealth management light type solution. So, uh, yeah. you know, those sorts of things, really. Nice. So two questions that we always ask are, if you could have started one company in the world, which company would that be? And the second question is, 
if you could have a working lunch with anyone in the world, who would that be with? Christ, those are good questions. And I suppose what you instantly think about is you don't want to go down the normal of what everybody else would choose. Yeah. So it can be anything. It can be a product you're obsessed with, you know, your favorite businessman or author or someone who was a mentor to you that you'd like to just go for lunch with. Yeah. And it can be anyone, really. It's a good point. I mean, first I'd like to sit down with probably would be a guy called Ellery Hanley, who was a fantastic rugby league player back in the day. Probably the best sportsman I've ever seen, actually. It's just such a shame. I mean, I'm a big rugby league fan, but it's quite a small sport. So he didn't ever get the adulation and the general awareness of him. But he's actually gone on to be a pretty successful business guy, actually. You know, nothing spectacular, but he's taken his ability in sport and turned that into a business. And I think anybody that can reinvent themselves like that in different eras and different times, but still be as successful at what they do in both aspects, I think is incredibly... And I think as well, I mean, I once went to Downing Street for a sports event and Tony Blair was speaking and he said, top-class sports people are probably the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. Not uh, maybe educationally, but he says, to be able to make the decision and balance up all the risks that are going on to make that decision and do it in an instant like that, faster than everybody else, shows an incredible intelligence. And it's almost primal, right? I mean, it's almost for that. So... So only Henry on that. And in terms of business, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of the guy, but any one of Elon Musk's business, I think, is pretty interesting. And uh, probably not for the reasons that uh, are obvious. I mean, most people see Tesla as a car company, you know, but the reality is he makes more profits from trading carbon credits than he makes from doing cars, right? So the guy just gets it, I think. And I think he thinks so much further than everyone else. And people were laughing at what he was doing 10 years ago. So now everybody thinks, well, he's saying put a city on Mars. You sort of take him a bit more uh, seriously now, don't you? So probably from that perspective, I think SpaceX or Tesla would have been, but I just wouldn't have had that vision, to be honest. But that would be my take on that. Yeah, awesome. Well, great answers. And yeah, really interesting. Well, thank you so much, Hector. I really appreciate you taking the time to record an episode with us. And it's great to hear your riding unicorn story. And we wish Han ETF all, all the more success and growth in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been enjoyable. Thanks, James. Thanks.